0: Good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. As Jason said, uh, we're going to talk about something other than Romans. We spent 18 months talking about Romans, and now we're going to go into something that might be more detrimental to me. But we're going to talk about women this morning. We're going to talk, and I've, most times when I have a subject or a lesson, The approach you take is varying from one to the other. This one is a little bit more cautionary in my approach, um, knowing that there are many cultural things flying out there about the roles of women and how women should be looked at in our society, contrasted to that of the Bible. And this morning, I've entitled the lesson, Mobilizing Women for the Work, The word mobilize means to prepare and organize. It's usually in a military reference, prepare and organize for active service. And first and foremost, what we need to clarify is not saying that we don't do this already, but there's a cyclical nature of mobilizing troops for military and everything else. There's a recruitment process and a training, and it's something that goes on and on and on. And that's something that has to happen in the church as well with our women. Our purpose in this lesson is to encourage women in their service to God and the church. And what we will not be doing today is we will not be discussing the role of women in these walls in the assembly. Oftentimes when we talk about women, we talk about their role in the assembly. And then we spend so much time on that that we don't talk about the great value that they have to offer to the growth of the kingdom and in the home. So we're not going to be talking about the role of women in the assembly today today. At all, I want to give us a little bit of cultural context before we begin, though. In 1976, I know a woman that gave birth to a child that she could not claim on her insurance because she was single and not married. The reason I know that is because that child that was born was my wife, and the woman was my mother-in-law. It wouldn't be until 1978 that she could actually get a credit card in her name. Now, for those of you that are trying to do the math and figure out how old my wife is, I'll tell you what it is. It's 25. I do that math every year, and somehow it always winds up being 25. It is no doubt that there are some dark spots in the history of our country that the way women have been treated, but is not a biblical view of what God desires for women. And it's very popular in our secular world to criticize God, the Bible, and Christianity. And one reason for that is the purported view of what people think women or how women are viewed by God, how women are viewed by the apostles, and how women are viewed in Christianity. And the Bible writers viewed women, they think they've, they're, they're viewed women as inferior or who were less valuable to the work of the church. There's an atheist that he's passed away, but his name was Christopher Hitchens. And he used to wrote, he was on the media all the time, he wrote a lot of books. And this is one of the things he said, a consistent proof that religion is man-made and anthropomorphic or having human or uh, human tendencies can also be found in the fact that it is usually man-made in the sense of masculine as well the Old Testament, as Christians condescendingly call it, was woman cloned for man for his use and comfort. The New Testament has St. Paul expressing both fear and contempt for the female. And this is what the world teaches that the Bible says about women. This is what the world teaches that how we view women in the church. And it couldn't be further from the truth. So is it true that the biblical treatment of women uh, promotes an, an immoral code on how women are treated in contrast to what the Bible really says, because what the Bible really says about the treatment of women is in perfect accord with God's will. Now, most people in the world, and maybe atheists or agnostic, they point to the work of Charles Darwin to prove the lack of God in our society. But how did Darwin view women? In his book, The Descent of Man, this is what he said about women. The chief distinction in the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man's attaining to a higher eminence. And whatever he takes up, then can women, whether requiring deep thought, reason, or imagination, or merely the use of the senses and hands. The average of mental power in man must be above that of women. Man has ultimately become superior to woman. According to Darwin, males had evolved to a higher level than women. He simply states that they had attained to a higher eminence in everything that they take up when compared to females. In reality, if the view of atheism or uh, Darwin's evolution is true, then all male-dominated societies are such because males are more dominant. The natural conclusion is that since it's about the survival of the fittest, one must conclude that a male-dominated society in which women are viewed as inferior, as Darwin puts it, it must admit it is following the natural order of things. The reality is, is those who espouse espouse atheism and Darwinism, have a much more thorny problem with the view of women than the Bible. Here's why. What is the scriptural view of women? Whenever you look at the book of Proverbs, and the main thought, theme of Proverbs is the concept of wisdom. In Proverbs 4 and 7, it says... The beginning of wisdom is this: get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. He further emphasizes the desire and the need to get wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 11, for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with him. So, what picture is used to personify this trait of wisdom? What picture or what portrait do we get throughout the book? Of proverbs, as the writer is trying to show us what wisdom is and the characteristics of wisdom. It's a woman. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way at the crossword? She takes her stand. How can Bible writers be misrepresented to suggest? that they don't value women. Whenever you look at wisdom, this principal thing throughout the book of Proverbs is portrayed as a woman. I'll never forget the day that I realized how much wiser my wife was than than me. It's obvious if you've known us for any amount of time, she's obviously more intelligent. She is wiser but I'll never forget the day that I realized that she was light years ahead of me. Years ago, I had a friend whose daughter had begun dating, and my daughter was pretty young at the time. And he was talking about, my friend was talking about her daughter is the first guy that she chose to date. He wasn't real pleased with her. That there was, you know, some problems. He had a broken home. He'd come from a broken home and had some problems in the family, and it just wasn't what he pictured his daughter choosing. I was a little bit offended, to be completely honest, because he was describing me. (laughs) I was like, what, you don't think I would be good enough for your daughter? And I remember talking to my wife about that, and I was telling her all about it, and she asked the question. She said, would you want our daughter bringing you home? I was like, listen here, woman. Now is not the time for reason and logic. (laughs) Of course the answer was no. I didn't want my daughter bringing me home. But in that moment after I thought about that, I realized I was way behind in the wisdom game. She was much further ahead in wisdom than I was and, and still is, to be completely honest. Proverbs also includes a lengthy section in, the, in uh, chapter 31 about a woman that we call the virtuous woman. And all of the things that she does and how, how she has extolled the worth of a virtuous woman who is clothed in strength and honor, who opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. There's other great examples in the Old Testament that we can look at. We can look in the book of Judges in chapter 4. There's a woman by the name of Deborah. Deborah would be come and be elevated to the position in which she would rule over Israel, that she was a judge. And this tells the story of a man by the name of Barak that came in and was her right-hand man. And it's this great story how they won and defeated someone in battle. At the end of that, there is a song that they put together, and it praises God, and it recognizes her and her role as leadership. Whenever you go to the book of Second 2 Kings chapter 22, This is the record of a young king by the name of Josiah. Josiah commands the high priest Hilkiah to go and repair the temple. In repairing the temple, Hilkiah finds a book of the law. And he takes it to Josiah, and Josiah commands him to go inquire of the Lord for me concerning the words of this book that has been found. A little bit of context that it's gone on for 60 to 75 years, Israel has gone down the path of idolatry. So much to the point that Josiah goes, I need you to go inquire God of what this book is, that he didn't even know God's commandments. And couldn't recognize it. Hilkiah goes and finds a woman by the name of Hilda. She was a prophetess. She had a husband. He didn't tell, he didn't go to the husband, he went to the wife. And it was through Hilda, Hilda Huldah that God's will was delivered. God spoke through her. When you go to the book of Esther, an entire book written about a young girl. Who was willing to sacrifice her life for her people, who has essentially elevated herself and ascended to the queen the, the, the role of queen in Persia. And you could go on and on and on and talk about people like Ruth and Rahab in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have all of these passages that talk about women. Their role. They're helping in Christ. They're helping in the furtherance of the kingdom. And this is just a small part. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 3, Paul refers to Priscilla as a co laborer in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 4, he refers to two women as not only co laborers, but also contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. This is how. God viewed women. Consider the numerous salutation in Paul's letters and how he would spe- specifically point out women thanking them for their work, for their service in the church, for their attending to his needs. <coughs> to whom was the gospel first delivered? Remember, the word "gospel" simply is a term that means good news. Paul defines the gospel for us in one Corinthians chapter fifteen and verse one. Now, to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Who was the first to receive this message? Who was the first entrusted with delivering this message? It was women. Now after the Sabbath or the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And beheld, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, He is risen. As He said, Come see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He was risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. The first gospel message was entrusted to women. It was entrusted to them to deliver that gospel message to the disciples. Does that, is that a picture that we've looked at in which God views women as inferior? That their worth isn't as much as a man's? Or is that the world twisting God's Word for the purpose of Satan? So what is the biblical expectation for women? This is a question that has to be answered to fully understand the invaluable work that women offer in the spread of the gospel and the nurturing of the congregation. And I'm not going to go spend a lot of time bouncing around throughout the Scriptures because I believe Titus perfectly sums up this cyclical nature of what God expects. He says there in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of god may not be reviled so first of all he says the older women ought to be teaching the younger this is that cyclical nature this is that military preparedness that we go through in our military of recruiting and training and teaching it's the same thing that goes on in the church we continually mobilizing our young with the old so that they can grow up in the work of the church. There's some challenges that we have that we've not had in times past. When it comes to the older teaching the younger and bridging that gap, and it's not been until recently that I've kind of realized that I'm on that older side now. I was talking to my neighbor a few months ago, and he's quite a bit younger than me. And he kept calling me, he kept saying, yes, sir, no, sir. I don't have a problem with that, because, you know, I teach my children to say that as well. My problem was he meant it. You tell by the inflection in his voice, I was now a a sir. (laughs) I didn't really appreciate that. The older and the younger in that gap between age. There's some challenges that we've not had in times past primarily the more modern our world becomes with technology. Social media has done so much damage to, in breaking down barriers, or not breaking down barriers, but breaking down proper communication between people. What social media does is it puts us in our own silos of everybody and things that people agree with us on. And our ideas, and we want to be, and I want to follow this person, and this person's following me, and so I have this group of people that I agree with, and they agree with me. You cannot have proper communication whenever that's the idea. And we're raising a generation in which social media has been a part of their lives for almost all of their lives. it presents a challenge in bridging that gap between the old and the young. Whenever you look in the, old, in the early New Testament church, the communities were, were much smaller. Spending time with one another was common. When we look at our societies today and our cities are much larger and we're spread out much further, and then we... Add this aspect of everybody agreeing with me, and if you don't agree with me, then you hate me. How does that impact relationships? And not just relationships in the world, but relationships in the church. One of the things that has become quite common on social media is to refer to older people as boomers. And they say, okay, boomer. The reality is, you just think the older generation is dumb. And they have nothing to offer. And that's a sad state for us to be in, and we cannot allow that to creep into the church and our relationships between the young and the old. He says they're teaching them to love their husbands and children. For some time, I really struggled with this admonition. I really, truly did struggle. How a woman would have to be taught to love their child. Their husbands, I understand. The child, I didn't. And I have to thank Brad for his lesson on Titus. He gave some cultural context that I didn't know about and that I didn't understand that really... Brought this out to light as the reason that Paul would need to say this. He talks about this is research in the mythology that was around the church at Crete and how the people viewed Zeus. They viewed Zeus in a nutshell that Zeus was a liar and a womanizer, and the Cretans immortalized him for this. They took pride in his shady character and underhanded ways. Men also were known for their violence. Some, they were mercenary soldiers. They would be bid out to the highest bidder. It said there that these wealthy, emancipated women enjoyed a greater deal of privileges than their Greek counterparts. A woman could enjoy greater liberties in a society where they exploited their freedoms to shirk off marriage and household responsibilities. When a culture is created in which they immortalize, a God, a false God, that got everything that he got through manipulation and and lying, what do you think that creates those that worship him? It would definitely create women that didn't love their husbands and women that didn't love their children. Fast forward 2,000 years, we still have the same problem. news story after news story of women not taking care of their children, of women killing their children. The debate about abortion rages on. Most abortions are for the purpose of having, not having a child getting in the way of, of their life. Certainly, there is a need for women to learn to love their children. I watched a documentary about a young boy that was t- tortured and beaten until, and it, for a, a long time, and he finally succumbed to his torture. And people were upset. They were angry because what happened was he fell through the cracks of the social system and social workers had missed all the marks, and it was kind of the first case in which the DA actually brought these social workers and indicted them on charges because they didn't catch all of these things. The failure was the parents. The fault of those in the social system wouldn't be needed If the mother was loving her child, there are great aspects of love shown each day. This word love is not just emotions and feelings. This is talking about a sacrificial love. there are many women that I have known and do know that have sacrificed a lot out of love. I can't name the number of hours in sleep that my wife has sacrificed solely out of love for me and our children. We need to understand the principle of sacrificial love and what was given. This is the same type of love that any time referred to is that love which points to Jesus Christ. How He was willing to give up His life for a creation that had rejected Him. This is the same kind of love. A love that is never failing He goes on to say that women need to be self-controlled, pure, keepers of home, and that just as he told the older women—excuse me—the older men to act sensibly, the women are also commanded to act likewise. He says they are to be self excuse me—controlled, pure, working at home. One of the greatest principles that we need to strive to is that of purity. Jason mentioned that in his prayer this morning, and that's something that we should always be prayerful for. But it's also one of those things that you can't help and go through and look at these qualities and go, this is where, as a culture and a society, we are greatly missing the mark. The idea of purity, modesty, chaste, That is not something our young ladies are being taught in the world. That's not something our young ladies are being taught at school. But it is something that we need to be teaching one another. That is something that our mothers need to be teaching their daughters. That grandparents need to be teaching to their granddaughters. That the older need to be teaching to the younger. Striving for pureness and holiness. Further Paul commands that they are to be workers at home. And here's another facet. We're just going through all these and I'm I'm be honest, every time I looked at one of these I was like, well, we're, society's not doing this either. Another facet is the workers at home. What Paul women are commanded to be caretakers of the home that they are to be the managers of the home. And I don't believe that he's saying that a woman can work, can't work can work outside the home, but the home is their charge. And the management of that home is their charge. This doesn't come naturally to some women. Ladies, there are many of you that I'm talking to the choir on this subject. This was what you grew up with. And this is what you saw. But I want you to consider the world around you today. This is not what goes on in the home like it once used to in our culture and our society. The idea that the woman is to be the care and manager of the home. If you want to get into an argument... Bring this subject up. My wife, when we got married, this wasn't a natural strength of hers. Before you begin looking over at my wife to see if she's shooting daggers at me, I ran this by her first. This wasn't the way in which she was raised. This took training, this took time, this took numerous conversations with Cheryl Jones. And now my wife, I am blessed, and I can be honest and say that there are many days that I look at her in awe and go, how do you do it? How do you go all day being a teacher, dealing with kids, that, that, that should be enough. And then you come home and you manage our home. You efficiently use the funds that we have. You make sure our children are tended to and taken care of. You make sure that my needs are met. There is no greater value in a woman work in which a society looks down on a woman that does this. The virtuous woman whom we referenced earlier, I want you to think about some of the characteristics that it talked about her in Proverbs chapter 31. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions of her, for her maidens. She put her hands to the distaff, and her her hands hold the spindle. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This was a woman that was constantly maintaining and concerned about the management of her home. Talks about the elders in the gate that praise her. And that her husband essentially can hold his head high because... Not anything that he does, but because of his wife. What a great blessing and what a great praise that is. This doesn't happen overnight. For those of you that may look at your home and your management of your home and go, I'm not you know, the virtuous woman. I'm not getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and getting food ready. Which I I wouldn't fault you in that. Spend some time with a woman who has. And I know whenever we start talking about this subject, you're skirting on something that is very personal in in a woman's home. But we don't grow by not discussing those things that go on in our homes and how we can be better. We can't live in silos in which this is the way I do my house and I can't teach others about the way that I do things. And there's a a point of pride that has got to be removed from these conversations. Or let me rephrase that. That has got to be moved so that we can have these conversations. That not every home is alike. And what you may do may be something different than what I do. But this is how we equip one another to be better managers of our homes. This is how we equip one another to become better and furthering the cause of the kingdom. All pride has got to be set aside. He goes on to say that they need to be kind and submissive to their husbands. You want to get in another argument, talk about a woman being submissive to her husband. Christianity is frequently viewed through the lens of oppression than life-giving liberation. The West values individuality. The West values independence and freedom to think for ourselves, to Go out and discover who we are. Many years ago, I was at a wedding. And the preacher was reading from Ephesians chapter 5. And he turned to the husband and asked him to acknowledge these things, principles in Ephesians chapter 5, that he loved his wife as Christ loved the church and that he gave himself for it. And the husband acknowledged it. And then he turned to the wife and he read from Ephesians chapter 5, and he talk, where it talked about the woman submitting to her husband and showing reverence or respect for her husband. And there were members in the audience that laughed. I was appalled and amazed at the same time. How could you look at one? Instance of him telling the husband, hey, you've got to go out and live for this woman as Christ lived for the church, that he would sacrifice himself for the church. That's how you need to live for your woman. And everybody goes, that sounds good. That's right. But in the same breath that the Holy Spirit breathed that, that he said that a woman should submit to her husband and show him reverence and respect, and that's funny? How is that possible? There's some things that, some misguided notions of what people talk about what submission is and what it's not. Submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Submission does not mean that a woman is going to get all of her spiritual strength through her husband. Submission does not mean that a woman has to live or act in fear. But this is what submission is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death of the cross, Unto death, even the death of the cross. The principle in this is that Christ, on the same footing with God, humbled Himself to be murdered by His own creation. It says there that He humbled Himself to the point of death. Whenever you think about that, we think about it in terms of death that happens. Christ being immortal and always existing, He didn't have to think about things in terms of death. He had to submit himself to something which had no reign over him. And had to submit himself to death. This is the picture of submission. Perfect submission made Jesus subject to an unjust power that had control over him. You know, he stood before Pilate and in John chapter 19, and Pilate simply said, you know, don't you realize that I have the ability to uh, cast you to, towards crucifixion or not? And Christ's response was, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And he willingly sacrificed himself and submitted to this creation that would murder him, the creation in which he created. Unfortunately, modern society views submission in the way wrong way. I don't even know if that's a, a proper way to phrase that. That's a horrible way to phrase that. Views it in the wrong way. That in submission, you are just simply going along to get along. That you're giving all of this stuff up. When in reality, a husband and wife, and we look at the roles in the church, and we look at the roles in the home, how that those two patterns are exactly identical and what God wants. And you don't realize the power you teach your children when you teach them to Submit. Ladies need to be given the opportunity to submit. Guys, we like these passages where it tells the woman to submit. The question is is, how are you at submitting? In the book of Jude, the writer talks about there about false teachers. And he doesn't talk about them in the sense that they're coming into the, the congregations teaching false things. He talks in the sense, Of their conduct and their actions. That they were revilers, they were against the government, they spoke evil of dignitaries, they did all of these things. Guys, are we good at submitting? If I want my wife to fulfill her role in submissiveness, I definitely need to take the time to fulfill my role in submission. I have to submit to God's will. I have to submit to the will of the authorities we have in this land. I have to submit to the authority of my elders. What what does your wife see in that? We need to empower our wives and our children to look at this in the proper light. Given the opportunity to make decisions about their faith and their growth. Lastly, women are instructed to teach, and we go back up to verse 3. He says, they are to teach what is good. That word just means right, proper. Teach what is good, right, proper. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15, 15 Mark, chapter 16 and verse 15, it says, "And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Is this passage for men only? You know, we talked about the cyclical nature of mobilizing our workforce. Historically, we've not been very good at this part. and setting up that expectation for our ladies to be teachers. Many years ago I was given the, one of the greatest gifts from my wife and I was given one of the greatest gifts that we've ever received in 1999 it was we were early, we were young in our faith and we're living in Lubbock and we first moved there a man named by the name of David Minson asked me if I would like to study and I said yes. And he said, what would you like to study? And I said, let's just start from the beginning. For three years, every Sunday night, after church, I went and studied in his home. And I say it was the gift of time, because 20 years later, and having my children in my home, Sunday night is that catch-a-breath kind of moment, isn't it? And he gave that up. I think David kind of assumed that Angel would kind of go and hang out with Tanya and the girls. And he asked her about it and she said, no, I want to study. And I'll never forget the next statement out of her mouth. I'm not getting to heaven on my husband's knowledge. So for three years, side by side, I studied with my wife. For three years, side by side, we were given homework in which we had to study together. And I cannot thank David Minson enough for what he gave us. There are many principles to teaching, but I want to look it down, narrow it down to two of them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently, speaking of your children to your children, and shall talk of them. When you sit, or speaking of the law, I'm sorry, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and rise, when you lie down and when you rise. The principle is here, it's this constant communication of God's will. Constant communication of what God wants from us, whether that's in the car, when we're driving, when we're at the dinner table, this constant reaffirmation of what God's will is. The other aspect of teaching, is, which cannot be overlooked, is open in the book. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Paul praising two women for the faith that they had passed on to, their, to the son and grandson, and this is how they did it. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. His mother and grandmother didn't just talk about God. They showed Him God. They showed it in their lives. And they showed them in the Scriptures. Do you know what the next verse in this is? I never noticed it in the context because we use it all the time. For the Word of God is profitable for all of these characteristics in us. The one, we quote that all the time, but leading up to that, He said, you got that from your mother and your grandmother. One of the questions that you hear a lot, if you talk to an elder or you talk to an evangelist, you will hear, they will say a lot of times, a woman will approach them and say, I don't know how to study the Bible. And I understand that. You take this book and we hammer it Sunday and Wednesday, and we say, you've got to be in it, and you've got to study it. Well, how do you do that? And I sometimes think we maybe take a little bit for granted on what we do three times a week, and we don't take the time to properly equip our ladies and our daughters on how to study the Bible. We spend numerous hours in teacher training and song training and all of those things, but what about the ladies? What about a single mom that has no clue and doesn't have a husband on how to study the Bible? Ladies, if you're in that position this morning, I highly, highly recommend that you go talk to Jason Westbrooks and Carrie Jones. Talk to Trevor Teal. They're all very good in instructing and angles that you can go about studying the Word of God. Wives, talk to your husbands. Hold each other accountable in this. Create some sort of expectation amongst one another. Historically, many have applied the scriptures of the or excuse me the structures of the assembly to what goes on outside these walls there even to the point where some men will say that a woman can't teach a man at all period i want to shed a little bit of light on that subject this morning in acts chapter 18 after this paul left athens and went to corinth and he fed a, excuse me found a Jew named aquila and a, a native of pontus recently come from italy with his wife priscilla Because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and he stayed with them, and they traveled with him. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Later on in the same chapter, he says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This was the reason that Paul praised Priscilla and called her a co-laborer in the work and the gospel of Christ. There is... Nowhere in the Scripture that says that a woman cannot teach a man outside of these walls. As a matter of fact, when you look at Priscilla, it's completely opposite. I want you to notice a couple of things about who Priscilla was teaching. She wasn't teaching a scrub. It's said there that he taught accurately, the, thir- the things concerning Jesus. It says there that he was competent in the Scriptures. Priscilla helped teach him and expound further about God's plan and God's will. One of the greatest advices, consistent advice I got was from a woman In Lubbock, when I first started teaching, she would always give me good criticism after my lessons. And I always loved her criticism. She never approached me in an arrogant or you're doing this wrong type of manner. She always approached me and said, I liked this. You might ought to think about this. That helped shape my teaching early on in such a way that I could not thank her enough. But she took the time. She had knowledge in the Scriptures and she would help me and she would teach me. Ladies, I know you're looking and thinking that it's not fair. (laughs) I've got to, to manage the home which I look at that in and of itself as almost a a 24-hour-a-day job. And all the responsibilities you have to your home, to your work, to your husband, to your children, and then you go, you're responsible for the gospel too. You're responsible and you need to spend time in God's Word. And you might be looking at me and going, you're a guy you don't understand. All the things that I have to do for me to peel off time to break down God's Word. And I understand that. I really and truly do understand that. But I would like to refer you to Luke chapter 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed her into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. So... You have Martha and her sister Mary coming to Jesus' house, and Mary chooses to sit at Jesus' feet. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Here's Jesus' response. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, portion which will not be taken away from her. Christ did not tell Mary or Martha that she didn't have these responsibilities. But what He did tell her was that Mary has chosen to sit at my feet. These other things can come at another time. But she has chosen that good portion, that necessary portion, which was to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. Ladies, I understand that your schedule is hectic. I understand that having those children is hectic. And the management of the home is hectic. But you have got to choose the necessary thing and that good portion and sit at the feet of Christ. You have got to sit at God's Word and spend time in it. Because that's how you teach others. This morning, Mary, Christ said, Mary has chosen the good portion. And it will not be taken away from her. And we look at that example of a woman who made the right decision at the right time. And I ask you this morning, what decision have you made concerning your relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you chosen that necessary thing? Have you chosen that good portion? Have you chosen Jesus Christ? Are you willing to submit to Him, be baptized in the waters of baptism, resurrected to a newness of life? This morning I know that we've talked specifically about the ladies But I know that from time to time we all have struggles that we can overcome and help overcome with one another. We can offer up prayers on your behalf. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.